Body composition plays a huge role in dementia. And this starts in your 30s. There's the difference between what is basic and what is optimal. And I would argue that while the recommendation is incredibly variable, a great starting place is one gram per pound ideal body weight. And people can titrate up or titrate down based on that. We haven't seen any level that protein has become toxic. The body can really handle the urea and ammonia very well. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so thrilled about today's episode with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. I had been wanting to interview her for so, so long. I love that she is really one of the only people out there really focusing on the role of protein for females. If you've been listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast recently, I'm sure you've been hearing Cynthia Thurlow and I talk about this all the time. Gabrielle is the person who knows all of these stuff about this. I was so excited to finally ask all of my nitty gritty, crazy details about protein intake, especially in women. And what I love in particular is we do talk about, do you have to eat all animal protein for this? Do you have to be doing a super high meat heavy diet? And Dr. Lyon knows that there are a lot of ways that you can get your adequate protein intake. So I think this episode will be so approachable for so many listeners. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash Gabrielle Lyon. That's G. G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-L-Y-O-N. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. Friends, I give away full-size beauty counter products every single week, so many places. You can win multiple times, so definitely check out those giveaways. Not a lot of people enter, so you have a very good chance of winning. There have been a lot of repeat winners. If you are enjoying this show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world if you could take a brief moment and subscribe and or write a brief iTunes review. It helps so much more than most people realize, so thank you so, so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market 
ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S.? 
that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity. If you are using conventional skincare makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up and just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. It is with somebody that I have been dying to interview for actually, honestly, for years about a topic that I am personally ridiculously obsessed with, and that is muscle and protein. I'm here with Gabrielle, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and she doesn't know this yet, but my my protein intake, when I tell people it, they are always shocked and they don't believe me (laughs) because I just think it is so, so important. And I'm always on the intermittent fasting podcast talking about the importance of protein. So I'm super aware of the health benefits and I'm excited to dive deep into that. But then I'm also super haunted because there's all these ideas of protein restriction for longevity. And I've had people on like Dr. Walter Longo and David Sinclair, and they're saying, you know, completely the opposite of high protein diet intakes. So 
oh, this topic. I have so many questions. I am so excited. Dr. Lyon, thank you so much for being here. What a great intro. Thank you for having me. So I'm sure listeners are probably very familiar with your work, but I'll tell them just a little bit about your background, which by the way, we were just talking offline. We were connected officially through Cynthia Thurlow, which is so fabulous because she's my new co-host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. So it's just a wonderful small little world. But in any case, Dr. Lyon has a doctorate in osteopathic medicine from the Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine. She's board certified in family medicine. Her undergrad was in human nutrition from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And I love this where it says she studied vitamin and mineral metabolism, chronic disease prevention and management, and the physiological effects of diet composition. Oh my goodness, I'm so That's like the rabbit tangent holes of my life every night researching that. And she's completed a research and clinical fellowship in nutritional science and geriatrics at Washington University in St. Louis. And you've probably seen her, well, you've probably seen her on social media and podcasts and all the things, but she's been on the doctors and written for muscle and fitness and women's health and men's health and so many things. So again, thank you so much for being here. I have so many questions for you. But just to start things off and to welcome you to our audience here, you're known as your focus being the importance of protein and muscle and all of that. Did you have an epiphany one day that led to that? Like what led to your fascination with that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I don't know if you believe in serendipity, but I certainly do. And I started my nutrition. I was really interested in nutritional sciences from a very young age. I graduated high school in three and a half years and I moved in with my godmother. And it just so happens that my godmother was a PhD and is a PhD in nutritional sciences. This was kind of the generation before Mark Hyman. She would kill me for saying that. So she's a little more senior and very well-known and a professor in the medicine space and also in the integrative functional medicine space. And her name is Liz Lipsky. And after living with her, so I was working for Room and Board, doing all kinds of things, it really transformed the trajectory of my life, becoming really interested in nutritional sciences. And then I went to the University of Illinois and I studied human nutrition. Lo and behold, where I really gravitated was protein metabolism. And I fell into the lab of Dr. Donald Lehman, who really was and is a pioneer. He's a professor emeritus now, so he's retired, but he's a pioneer in the nutrition space, especially when it comes to protein metabolism. And in fact, when we get into our discussion a bit more, this whole leucine concept that it's a meal threshold, which is one of the essential amino acids, he discovered that. That was a discovery from him and some of his students, Tracy Anthony was being one of those individuals that discovered that leucine was a meal threshold. Wow. He's an OG then. He is a very OG. Yeah. Yes. That really became where my interests lay And then what happened was really fascinating, right? So I did not like medical school. I did not like residency. Unfortunately, it was pretty disease-focused. But of course, being able to understand the baseline issues with disease allows you to be a, a very capable physician. And as a 
physician, you spend a lot of time and energy really focused on what is best for the patient. And typically what's best for the patient in the medical conversation isn't necessarily preventative. And I was at my fellowship in at WashU in St. Louis, and I did a combined fellowship in nutritional sciences, obesity, medicine, and geriatrics. And there was a very clear moment that I felt as if we and I had failed this one particular participant of this study. And she was an older woman. When I say older, okay, late 40s, early 50s, has three children, and she'd always struggled with weight. And it wasn't a tremendous amount of weight. Maybe it was 10 pounds, maybe 20 pounds, but she had always really struggled with her weight. And part of this was an intervention study looking at diet, nutrition, brain function. And I imaged her brain. So my job as a investigator on this paper, the study that we were doing, which was a, a really large study, was doing the medical-based stuff. So doing the cardiovascular testing, doing the muscle biopsies, and also doing the brain imaging. And I imaged this woman's brain, and her brain looked like Swiss cheese. And at that moment, you know, it was just so devastating to see what was to come for her, you know, because at the time I was also working in nursing homes as part of my clinical fellowship. And I felt like we really failed, that here this woman was doing her very best to continuously be on the weight loss train. And what ultimately happened was she had destroyed her muscle and was going to be on a downhill, downhill spiral with some serious cognitive issues. You know, there was a chance she wasn't going to be able to remember, remember her kids' names in a decade. And it was at that moment that I realized we had been focusing on the wrong tissue, that we didn't have a fat problem. What we really had was a muscle problem. And if we had been focusing on our skeletal muscle, what would have happened would have been a lot different. And that was kind of my epiphany. So a question about that epiphany. So the brain, is it skeletal muscle? No. So the brain is affected by body composition. We know that the wider the waistline, the greater the chances of low brain volume. And Alzheimer's, which is really what I, I studied, what is type 3 diabetes of the brain. And there are multiple reasons why an individual would get Alzheimer's, but above, far and away, the most preventable and common way in which an individual gets cognitive impairment or dementia, I shouldn't even say Alzheimer's, I should say dementia, is being overweight. Body composition plays a huge role in dementia. And this starts in your 30s. Dementia starts in your 30s. So the wider the waistline, the more glucose dis dysregulation you have, the more elevated inflammatory markers. There are all kinds of issues that happen, and this really ultimately affects brain volume. So is it the actual obesity causing that issue, or is it the environment and diet that causes the obesity, causes the brain issues? I think that it's really the obesity issue because an individual... You know, and again, all these things are, are multifactorial, but we cannot discount that the more obese an individual, the more affected their brain is. 
Some people, of course, can skate away from it. But the reality is, if you are overweight in your 30s and you continue on that trajectory, you are putting yourself at a very unnecessary risk for dementia. I was going to talk about this later, but since we're talking about this now, I was poring over studies about methionine restriction, actually, and how those seem to lead to actually weight loss. I'm overwhelmed and confused about the role of protein substrates. I'm so glad you asked this question. So let's take a step back. And there, for the, the listener, there are 20 amino acids. In the natural environment, in the human body, there are 20 amino acids. Everything is made up of these 20 amino acids in various degrees. Of those 20 amino acids, there are nine essential amino acids. This means that the body that it, the body cannot make it and you know we have to ingest it of those 9 methionine is what we call a sulfur amino acid and it is an essential amino acid meaning we cannot produce it from the diet and what's so interesting about methionine is exactly as you had mentioned there's this concept of methionine restriction which we're going to actually talk about Technicality is that it's a nutritionally indispensable amino acid. And really, methionine, where its function comes in, is really in a multitude of ways. But ultimately, it donates a sulfur atom, right, to cysteine. And both methionine and cysteine play very unique roles in the body. One of which methionine is important in growth. It's also very important for glutathione production. When you hear methionine restriction, it's actually now called sulfur amino acid restriction. And where this actually comes from is rodent or mice models. And it's this idea that when you restrict this, when you restrict the amino acid methionine, which is largely found in dairy and animal products, it's very low in plants that your body generates what's called a integrated stress response. And this integrated stress response really plays a role in almost, you know, I hate to say cleaning the cells, but there, there is, you know, I, I don't want to say autophagy, but it definitely plays a role in autophagy. Now, this is in rodents. This is not actually in humans. This is rodents. And so this is the concept of methionine restriction and to date, all the studies are rodent or mice models. They're not human studies. And actually, I had one of the world-leading experts in actually methionine restriction, which is now called sulfur amino acid restriction, on my podcast that has not yet been released. She also came out of, her name is Dr. Tracy Anthony. She also came out of Dr. Don Lehman's lab. And uh, that's just incredibly fascinating. And what was so interesting is in my conversation with her, I asked her actually the very same question. And methionine restriction has really been popularized by a vegan diet is in essence a, a methionine restricted diet. And I asked her, I said, where do you feel that this really plays a role? And she said, we don't know where it actually plays a role yet in humans. But what where it can be beneficial is because it upregulates these stress responses because of the unbalanced amino acids that there can be a place for it in the human diet, but we don't actually know any clear endpoints. For example, should a sulfur amino acid restriction be for one meal 
Should it be for a day? Should it be for four days? What does it actually look at to measure health outcomes? We don't know that answer, but what we do know is when, and I I was looking at this, there was one randomized control trial. So this was interesting. This was a randomized control trial. It was a Mediterranean diet and it was a low fat vegan diet to improve body weight and cardiovascular, cardiometabolic risk factors. And this was Barnard. Dr. Neil Bernard? Yeah. 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 That, that's who the first author is. I've had him on the show, so I'll, I'll put a link to him in the show notes. Well, I, I can't say I totally agree with what he has to say. And he is obviously a vegan advocate. So we have to take that into account. But I was looking at this study that he was a part of. And when you look at the diet, the body compositions of the diet, They essentially put someone, it doesn't talk about methionine restriction, but it it was a vegan diet and they lost half the the weight that they lost was lean mass. And to me, that's really extreme. So half in a 16 week period, half the weight that they lost was lean mass and lean mass for people who are listening is obviously skeletal muscle and organs, organ, bone, or not bone, but everything else. Actually, I do think that bone is, I'd have to look, but the point is the half of the weight that they lost was lean body mass. And that's a problem. So your original question, is there a place with meth- for methionine restriction? I think it really depends. And I don't think those studies have been done in humans yet. And we have to really measure endpoints that are meaningful because there's a risk to doing these long-term. I'm super curious. What did they title the study? Like, how did they spin it? So it's a Mediterranean diet, low-fat vegan diet to improve body weight and cardiometabolic risk factors. Okay. When they concluded, did they even mention that lean mass part? No. Okay. Yeah. And so that that I thought is dangerous. I think it's very misrepresenting what can happen. But if you do look at the numbers, they did regain it once they went back to eating more high-quality protein. But there's a risk. And we have to understand, so is methionine restriction... You know, I, I think that it could probably, it's a tool and definitely there's there's benefit. The, the belief of the benefit is really with certain types of cancers, but it doesn't mean that, you know, still this is very proof of concept. And I don't know that if it can be translated yet in a safe way to humans. And I personally believe there's some benefit. I just don't know if we know how to do it effectively yet. Yeah, the reason I was thinking about it a lot recently was, do you know James Clement by chance? He wrote a book called The Switch. We were discussing the benefits of calorie restriction versus fasting and were they dependent on each other? Were they independent? Um, What was going on there? And he was just postulating that it was methionine restriction. So then I was like going down that rabbit hole. Yeah, I'm so super curious. Oh, and by the way, lean body mass would include bone. So I just wanted to clarify for that. Another question about that, because you were saying how if it is a benefit, we don't know the timeline on it. And actually, the study I was reading last night was looking at methionine restriction versus intermittent methionine restriction in mice. This is really important. So the the methionine needs in mice are different. The amino acids are, you know, rodents are fed a different kind of diet, right? It's it's challenging, but the, but it is different. So the mice models don't necessarily have a, again, it's a proof of concept. For example, their percentage of body weight, their skeletal muscle mass is much higher. You know, and the other thing with methionine restriction is that it's in a 
immune controlled environment. So the rats are living in a sterile environment. Let's say you put people under stress and you put them in a methionine restricted state, which is which upregulates this integrated stress response. One of the things that when I was talking to Tracy Anthony, this one of the world leading experts in this area, she's saying we have no idea what the other impacts would be because the the rodents and the mice are in a very sterile environment. It's so important to consider like what we can actually translate over. I haven't read the whole study, but I was just looking at the abstract of one that came out really recently. And it was actually saying that vegetarian or vegan diets are lower total protein, but not different in their ratios. I need to read the whole thing. Well, that, and that of course wouldn't be true because we know that, well, number one, we'd have to account for calories and, but vegan vegetarian diets are certainly lower typically. I mean, I guess it, it totally depends but they are typically much lower in leucine and some of the essential amino acids. And of course, there's lysine, the limiting amino acids in plants. We're looking at lysine and methionine are are typically limiting. For listeners, can you explain what you mean by limiting? Yeah. So when we talk about protein quality, we, you know, protein is very complex. Again, Protein is 20 amino acids, nine of which are essential. But when you look at the back of a food label, all you see is protein. But each protein, for example, the protein composition of a leaf is different than the protein composition of a bean, which is different than a protein composition of a piece of steak or a fish. The amino acids that make up these foods and these things are vastly different. And a very big shortcoming of what we're looking at in, which I think accounts for part of the confusion, is we think about protein as a whole macronutrient, which it is, but it's a really complex one. Each of these amino acids do various different things in the body. And the initial amino acid recommendations came from, you know, these relatively new, we're talking about the 1940s maybe a little bit before then, but really the current protein recommendations came from trying to figure out a way to feed soldiers that were in World War II and figuring out a way to be able to meet the protein needs for individuals that were thousands of miles away and a large majority of them. So how they determined this number, because again, protein and nutrition science is is relatively new. And one of the ways in which they determined this was through nitrogen balance studies. And nitrogen is a essential component to protein. And we need nitrogen for growth. We need nitrogen for multiple processes in the body. And the way in which protein needs were determined really translated from animal husbandry. So this idea of how much carbohydrates and proteins could be fed to animals to allow them to grow while keeping it as cheap as possible. And that's how they determine protein needs, right? They would measure, you know, so what is the maximum amount of carbohydrates and the minimum amount of protein to allow for protein turnover and ultimately nitrogen balance. And what happened was they estimated that the minimum amount of protein to prevent deficiency is 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is still now used today, even though we recognize that nitrogen balance studies are really flawed. 
because again, it doesn't take into account these individual amino acids, which we will now move to, you know, eventually we'll move to an indicator, an indicator amino acid score, not yet there, but it's a different way of, of determining total protein needs. And I will tell you that the indicator amino acid, it's an indicator amino acid oxidation method. And that the minimum amount of protein, according to that, is at least 1.2 grams per kilogram as, you know, where the RDA perhaps should be set at. So again, the initial recommendations, which are still to this day 0.8 grams per kilogram, was really based on these nitrogen balance studies of really younger men, you know, 19 years old that were going to war. And the average size of a male back then was 143 pounds. And the average female was 120 pounds, 121 pounds. Yet this is really where we based these recommendations from. So as you can see, there's somewhat of a disservice to that because if you fast forward, people view the RDA unknowingly as a maximum. But for example, Melanie, if you got sick, would you hesitate to take more than the RDA of vitamin C? You wouldn't, right? Even though the RDA for vitamin C is 60 milligrams, nobody goes, oh yeah, well, that's the maximum. Nobody does that. But for protein, people will say the RDA is based on, you know, which is based on nitrogen balance studies. Well, this must be the maximum. When in fact, it's likely not. And we do have the indicator amino acid oxidation method that we know is, you know, likely much higher, at at least 1.2 grams per kilogram per day. So I hate to get lost in a rabbit hole because we're going to come back to this methionine restriction and, and some of the other protein kind of intake issues. But at a very fundamental level, you can see these flaws. The RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram. It doesn't take into account the individual amino acids, which we know that individual amino acid needs are very specific for people. And we have to do a better job at making these more applicable to people if we're looking for optimization. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. It was my understanding that in general, the RDAs are erring on the side of not encouraging over-supplementation. Like they're, they're not going to put in numbers that they're worried would create toxicity from too much. So they're going to be lower rather than higher, which would make sense with the protein situation. And I have so many questions from that. Yeah, yeah. But I would say that the government doesn't necessarily all agree with themselves because the the RDA is sent at 0.8 grams per kilogram. But if you go and you look at like the MyPlate, that's set at, I believe, one in 1.5 grams per kilogram. So the RDA is really the bare minimum, and it's the goal is to prevent deficiencies in 97.5% of the population. So they came up with 0.8 grams per kilogram, and you must understand that, you know, there's also the World Health Organization that, you know, protein is very abundant in the U.S., but that's not like that everywhere else. So there is some sensitivity in terms of being and trying to make responsible recommendations on a fundamental level, the RDA is the bare minimum. And they know that, you know, under no uncertain circumstances does someone who's ingesting 0.8 grams do better, right? One, you know, 0.8 grams per kilogram do better than someone who's ingesting one gram per kilogram a day. The individual with a higher protein diet will do better in metabolic outcomes when calories are controlled. So here's a big foundational question that ties into all of that, because you mentioned how that 0.8 was determined based on, you know, certain men at a certain time who were presumably a lower body weight and such. But if it's a ratio, which again, I guess you were saying that, you know, that the ratio is too low, but if it's a ratio, wouldn't it not matter what the body weight is that you're checking because it's more just about the ratio? No, no. So I I think what you're getting at, so basically this is a really good question. So I'm going to let you finish your question. This is a very good question that I think that your listener would really benefit from. Like clarification surrounding that. And then to add to that, you know, what is determining the protein need? Like what factors? So basically what I'm hearing you say is that is protein dependent on, are you saying that is it dependent on body body size or or not? Yeah. Like total muscle or. Yeah. Okay. So let's Let's break that down. The first thing that we have to think about is what is the total protein need of an individual? And protein is responsible for a multitude of factors from hair, from skin, nails, protein turnover, which is the body's continuously breaking down and building up, which is essentially 250 to 300 grams a day of turnover in the body, which is different than dietary protein, but turnover is about 250 to 300 grams of protein. The body, as the body ages, the body becomes somewhat less efficient. Muscle becomes less efficient at sensing proteins. 
just the body isn't as robust, which isn't a great word, but isn't isn't quite as capable as it once was when we are younger and in growth. We have to understand that when we think about dietary protein needs, there's the difference between what is basic and what is optimal. In my mind, and the the science would support that 0.8 grams per kilogram is enough to prevent deficiency. Okay, so basically, if you're getting enough calories and you're getting 0.8 grams per kilogram, you're not going to be protein deficient. The average female, according to the NHANES data, gets about 75 grams of protein a day. The average male gets about 100 grams of protein a day. Now, let's think about what a great recommendation would be. And I would argue that while the recommendation is incredibly variable, right? So if you go and you look at the RDA, you could also then point out the AMDR, which is, you know, the the average requirements, which are anywhere from, you know, 10% of the diet to 35% of the diet could be from protein, right? So that's not a, a great strategy because the the percentage is so high. So if you are eating a thousand calorie diet and the range of protein is between 10 and 35% on a thousand calories, 10% of that is what? Like a thousand, a hundred calories from, from protein. So again, there's a huge disparity in the recommendations and we have to account for that. One thing to understand is that a great starting place is one gram per pound ideal body weight. And people can titrate up or titrate down based on that. And it doesn't matter if you are male or female. If you are a 150 pound female or a 150 pound male, and that is your ideal body weight, then I definitely recommend one gram per pound ideal body weight. Now, let's talk about the next most important thing. So a 24-hour protein intake is really important. The next thing to consider would be how are we going to distribute those calories and how are we going to distribute those amino acids over the day? And there is one particular amino acid that one could make an argument for a meal distribution, and that is leucine. And what's so fascinating is that if you are sub-threshold in leucine, and I define that by the blood levels of leucine being low and not high enough to reach a threshold amount, a hyperamino acid level in the blood, which ultimately for people who are interested is two and a half grams of leucine will increase the uh, leucine level in the blood enough to then trigger muscle protein synthesis. And this is really essential for helping with health and longevity. Okay, it's muscle is the organ of longevity. It's the most important factor, in my personal opinion. So after we determine the amount of protein an individual should eat, which I recommend is one gram per pound ideal body weight, and again, you can titrate up or titrate down, there isn't negative side effects with protein. But we then have to consider that it's actually the amino acids that we're eating for. And These amino acids, in particular leucine, require a threshold amount, and that translates to 30 to 50 grams of dietary protein per 
meal feeding and you could eat two meals a day or you could eat three meals a day if you're fasting, however you want to do it. But what becomes really important is you must reach that amino acid threshold because if you don't, you do not stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And over a period of time, if you do not stimulate muscle, you know, you will destroy it over a period of time. So you're talking about the blood levels, like so leucine showing up in the blood. What is the timeline of that? So is that immediately after a meal? Yes. Yep. So that's one reason why strategically you would want to eat your meal in a in at one time. You wouldn't want to spread out your your eating over an hour, or if you're drinking a protein shake, whether it you know depends on your absorption, but whether it takes 20 minutes to get all into your bloodstream. You want to consume it all at once. So kind of like with blood glucose, how, you know, you can see a large spike and then return to baseline, or you can see a lower spike, but a a slow drip basically of the glucose into the bloodstream. Does that happen with protein? Like if you have a ton of protein at once? I love this question because this highlights something that we spoke about. Are you ready? I'm so ready. (laughs) This is exciting because carbohydrates, you said glucose. And you're absolutely right. The body has a very tight control of blood glucose and it's one molecule, right? I mean, you know, it's one molecule of glucose, whereas protein is 20 different amino acids. At any given time, there are 20 different amino acids. So can we measure it? Yes. Does it translate to much? Mm, Questionable. What's really important is that leucine level, and that leucine level will get into the bloodstream, it will trigger muscle protein synthesis, and that could last for five hours. And then, you know, it's possible that it resets, but typically a lot of the research is done in that first meal, but could you measure it in the blood? You wouldn't necessarily need to because the studies have been done that we know that it's roughly about two and a half grams of leucine to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, but it's a great question. Okay. So like, so a hypothetical, like completely hypothetical, if there was a situation where you reach that threshold three separate times in a day, three separate times, and it's fast, like through a protein shake or something. So you reach it, then you're, <laughs> you have your muscle protein synthesis, then you're fasting, and then you, you do it again, like three times compared to one time. Could you only in that massive bolus of protein, say it's the equivalent of 2.5 leucine, but times three. So it's like 7.5 leucine. And I know it doesn't work that way, but like, is that the same benefits as three punctuated moments? What I'm hearing you ask is, is it good? And totally correct me. Is it good to stim? like, is there benefit of stimulating it more than once? Is that what you're getting at? Like a practical example would be a person who has breakfast, lunch, dinner, reaches that threshold three times a day compared to a person eating a ton, but all at once in like a one meal a day type situation. Yes. Great question. Well, first of all, the body will absorb all the protein that, that one ingests from a muscle protein synthesis standpoint, anything above around 55 grams of protein doesn't have muscle effects. And there's a lot of data in the literature. Don Lehman, my longtime mentor, looked at this, uh, Doug Patton-Jones. And the typical American feeding style is low-protein breakfast and lunch and then high-protein at dinner. And what happens is, is you lose the ability to stimulate muscle, which 
is important for a multitude of reasons. Well, number one, keeping healthy muscle. There's also a thermic effect of food that happens with protein. And it, it actually is really believed to be from turning on the, the mechanisms of the muscle. I would say that number one, you have to think about what is your goal. If your goal is to optimize for body composition, then the first meal of the day, whenever that is, is going to be the most important because you are in a catabolic fasted state and optimizing for protein at that time is going to be the most important. And let's say that's at 11. Your next meal, if your next meal is a couple hours later and it's a snack and it's a lower amino acid threshold, it's it's okay, right? I, I would be okay with it. Let's say you got 20 grams. And then your last meal of the day was closer to 50, so you're really optimizing for muscle protein synthesis. I think that that would be a fantastic strategy. So this strategy of bookending each meal, so if it's the first and the last meal, with a more optimal protein intake, I think is going to be more beneficial than a single meal of higher protein. And and arguably, a lot of those studies have been done, but you know, one thing to consider is that from a practicality standpoint, you have to set yourself up for success. And eating one meal a day, typically people will overconsume, or if they're not overconsuming, their metabolic rate can slow down, right? If you train your body to feed off of 800 calories, then you train your body to feed off of 800 calories and your energy expenditure decreases. And that would not be an optimal strategy. I hope that answered your question. So a clarification question, because you were saying about earlier how, you know, if you did have a massive bolus that maybe that, I don't think you used the word slow drip, but that we don't know, but maybe it could be like five hours of things being stimulated. Yeah. Yeah. It's just how long mTOR stays stimulated. Yep. So basically, because what I do, what I do is I do a quote one meal a day, but I I eat for about four or five hours and it's at night and I probably eat around between 200 and 250 grams of protein. So I'm just wondering practically like (laughs) what what that's doing. Um, Am I only reaching muscle protein stimulus once because it's all at once? Through dietary mechanisms, yes. The other way to stimulate muscle would be through exercise. But I would, I would consider, you know, again, it depends on what your goal is, but I would consider breaking it up. You know, two meals a day would be better than one from a muscle benefit standpoint. And that's a good thing to clarify for muscle maintenance and preservation or if I was looking for muscle growth. And then I guess we'd have to clarify. Yeah. Well, for muscle maintenance, you know, again, the 24-hour protein intake is most important And, you know, I'm assuming you're young, right? And so one meal a day for you could be adequate. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's optimal because, again, muscle utilization is only going to utilize 50 to 55 grams of that. It doesn't mean that you won't utilize protein for other things. But when it comes from, you know, really maxing out muscle protein synthesis, which over a period of time, the goal is to continue to stimulate healthy muscle And really, you know, I hate to say hypertrophy because that's not certainly everyone's goal, but having the capacity to maintain healthy body composition. And I really say this with some hesitancy because there are multiple ways to do things. And when you're young, you have a ton of flexibility. 
you're speaking about that cap of 50 grams being used for actual muscle. So beyond that, the rest of the protein that is catabolized, does it, because people will say excess protein becomes glucose. No, all protein becomes, all protein, protein becomes glucose. So for every 100 grams of protein an individual ingests, you generate 60 grams of glucose. And that's through the process of gluconeogenesis. You have to deal with the carbon skeleton. People like in the internet, like rabbit hole tangents will debate if gluconeogenesis is demand driven or substrate driven. So it's substrate driven. Probably a combination of both. It's probably a combination of both. The body doesn't exist in one way or another. You know, if an individual is in a fed state, then, you know, obviously they're generating, they're having to dispose of protein, but whether it's demand or substrate driven, it's probably a combination of both. It is probably a combination of both. And it depends on the kind of way in which you feed in general. So for example, if you eat a higher protein diet, the body becomes better at managing protein and more efficient at gluconeogenesis versus if you are a high carbohydrate eater, then your body becomes dependent and you'll have greater swings in blood glucose because you're required at that time, not required, but you're more efficient at utilizing the glucose you know, the body's expecting that from the diet. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold control. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. 
It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted. And it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. I'm so glad you said that. That was one of my questions was, you know, because I've been following such a high protein diet for such a long time, you know, does your body preferentially adapt certain enzymatic processes to yes how fast does that happen do you know there is a it typically an adaptation for an enzymatic ad- adaptation is a week to two weeks for example when we transition people off of when we begin to add in more you know higher quality proteins we typically give them you know you don't start someone from zero protein to a hundred grams you you know you give them two weeks to adjust a week to two weeks to begin to adjust slowly. So you mentioned the exercise piece being another way to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So I have a huge question about this. I've started doing M-Sculpt. Have you ever done that? Other forms of it might be like E-Stem. It's- Yes, yes, amazing. Yeah, so I've been doing it. So for listeners, it's these devices that stimulate muscle contractions while you're just laying there. It makes it contract- deeper than you ever could consciously and really intensely. And they say it's like the equivalent of like 20,000 crunches or 20,000 bicep curls or 20,000 tricep curls all in 30 minutes. What I'm fascinated by is A, I have seen really profound body composition changes from doing it, but B, so you do one session and then they say, well, you do multiple sessions, but they say from your first few sessions that you will continue to see benefits and growth for how many days? 30 to 60 days. I'm super curious about this genetic, I guess, or epigenetic, whatever's happening in an exercise and the potential for growth, like the timeline of that, how far out does that extend? I think that's a really great, great question. I don't know with the e-stim and I can tell you that putting on muscle is it's totally variable depending on your level of training, right? A very well-trained individual will struggle to get every one of those pounds on versus an untrained individual could put on 20 pounds of muscle in a year. I think there's also a lot of variability in terms of how much an individual can put on. What we do know is for muscle hypertrophy, it does require mechanical tension, which you provided. It does require metabolic stress, which you provided. It does require ribosomal biogenesis, which is the generation of protein. And then it does require calories. Calories can come from protein and, you know, a combination of carbohydrates. And ultimately that is what is also required in terms of muscle growth and hypertrophy. Yeah. Cause I mean, it was a paradigm shift for me going into it because I was always thinking 
on like a 24 hour timeline. Like you work out and then you, you know, eat that day and then that's where the growth is happening. But the concept of creating this stimulus and then the body continuing to remodulate and grow that muscle for like a month was really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. And then we also have to think, does the, you know, does the exercise, so we know that the exercise stimulates mTOR, but you know, in order to get that protein synthesis, you know, we need all these other things. So again, these are really good questions and and really good considerations. So excess protein, going back to that question about reaching the 50 cap and then what's happening to the rest of it. You mentioned earlier, I think you said there is not negative side effects to excess protein. No, we actually haven't seen them. There's a recent meta-analysis from Stu Phillips that talked about kidney function and, and protein, as well as there's information out there on bone and protein. These protein is required for bone protection, you know, formation, 40% of bone, you know, like this is what protein is made from. Bone is made from protein. In addition, in terms of kidney function, it can improve glomerular filtration rate. And that was in the Institute, you know, the Institute of Medicine talks about this. Again, this is not talking about someone with active kidney disease. And I even think that they have begun to change those recommendations. I will say we haven't seen any level that protein has become toxic. The body can really handle the urea and pneumonia very well. We, we just haven't seen it yet. Does that relate to the bun? Um, no. So blood urea nitrogen, you know, typically depending on what's happening, it's not necessarily a direct measure, right? One of the reasons an individual or physician would look at BUN would be more for hydration status. The BUN creatinine ratio is not amazing for identifying filtration rate. As a physician, I typically add in a cystatin C, which is an additional marker because the creatinine can change based on muscle mass. When you see a high ratio, what normally causes that? Well, usually if an individual has a high BUN, they likely just need fluids or hydration. That's probably more than number one. Well, mine is, I know you're not a doctor giving me medical advice. Mine's always high. And I've always wondered if it's from my high protein diet. The doctors tell me it's probably from the protein intake. Maybe. I eat so much protein. <laughs> I think a better indication would be, you know, the goal of looking at BUN is really in combination of with creatinine, but really looking at hydration status as well as filtration rate. And that is better indicated when you get a cystatin C. Is that the panel where they categorize if it's African-American or not, the filtration rate? Yep. Why is that? Just different uh, difference in kidney functions, just rates that whatever the lab values have determined. Okay. Another question for you. So especially in like the keto world and the fasting world and the paleo world, it is said that the body preferentially burns fat rather than muscle. Is that actually the case? Are people who are insulin resistant, do some people, their body actually burns muscle before fat? Like we especially have like stubborn fat stores. You know, I think this is a very complicated question. The preferential fuel source for muscle is fatty acids in general. The body, again, this is not, intended to be kind of a black and white answer, but the body, you know, protein is incredibly valuable. 
One reason why the body would begin to utilize muscle is if those amino acids are needed. You know, you can spare protein, meaning you can spare muscle if your calories are high enough and if your protein is high enough. So let's say you let's say you had a higher calorie diet, your body would likely be able to spare muscle, right? It's not going to utilize muscle. But again, if you're eating a high carbohydrate diet with no protein, then the body will, depending on what's happening, quite possibly tap into those amino acid reservoirs. Depends on what's happening. Now, the other aspect of this is if you were to go on a low-calorie crash diet, you better believe that you will be losing lean tissue. And again, we talked about lean tissue being organ, skin, bone, you know, water, whatever. But if you correct for a higher protein diet during that time with some kind of physical activity, you will spare muscle and then you will utilize fat for storage or you will use fat fat for energy. So what are your thoughts on protein sparing modified fasts? Fantastic. I think it's fabulous. For losing weight loss. Yeah. And I'm not giving anyone medical advice here. I'm not telling you to do it, but I think Melanie that that's really a fantastic thing if individuals wanted to get with their provider, but a, a protein modified sparing fast is phenomenal. I'm glad to hear you say that. that that's what I think. So, <laughs> okay. And then something that I've heard you talk about is myokines. Yeah. Yes. So wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about those or what that is. I would love to. And, you know, we must understand that we often think about skeletal muscle as fitness. And we think about it in terms of how our body looks, our strength, our power. But muscle is so much more than that. It is an incredibly dynamic tissue that we can voluntarily command. 40% of total body weight, right? It is a regulator of many things above and beyond strength. Contracting skeletal muscle releases something called myokines, and these are cytokines or peptides that are synthesized and released from muscle tissue in response to muscular contraction. And a woman named uh, Pedersen, she's in, I believe she's in Copenhagen, has really paved the way. She's an exercise immunologist. She's a, I believe she's an MD, PhD, has really paved the way in following up on this, this research And what's so fascinating is myokines act locally, right, within the skeletal muscle. They also regulate other tissues and they travel throughout the body and they interface with liver and brain and adipose tissue through receptors. And not only that, it plays a role in nutrient partitioning, for example, the way in which we use carbohydrates and the way in which we metabolize fat. And there are about, I don't know, there are hundreds of different myokines. The most well-studied myokine is is interleukin-6. And this was found in the early 2000s. And again, the most well-studied myokine. What's so fascinating about interleukin-6 is that when an individual is training, whether it's resistance exercise or cardiovascular exercise, the skeletal muscle releases interleukin-6. And interleukin-6 increases glucose disposal, 
increases the uptake of glucose and fatty acid oxidation. And it does a whole host of things as it relates to nutrients. One other really interesting thing is it seems as if interleukin-6 is secreted more when someone is in a low glycogen state. And that is, right, so glycogen is the storage form of carbohydrates, typically in muscle. And when this is a low, when an individual is in a low glycogen state, typically more interleukin-6 is released. Interleukin-6, oftentimes people think of it, you know, as a negative aspect, you know, released from cells of the immune system. But again, it is actually released from the muscle as a myokine. Incredibly interesting. Another myokine that is pretty popular, people might not even realize as a myokine, is BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. And this is important in the regulation of neuronal survival, plasticity, growth in the brain. You know, perhaps, you know, even having a really important impact above and beyond mood. Yeah, and there's a whole host. There's interleukin-15 and a whole bunch. But again, they in these myokines interface with the immune system and really play a role in regulating other aspects of the immune system. Fasting has been shown to raise growth hormone when we're fasted. So even though that's not exercise and it's not protein, is that a way to ultimately stimulate muscle protein synthesis when you eat again? So no, fasting would be a catabolic state. Fasting would not stimulate muscle protein synthesis, but I, I like where you're going with it. You're thinking, how could we stimulate it in a alternative route is what I'm hearing you say. So what's happening when we're fasted and our growth hormone is up? I mean, in my mind, it's really just a way to counter-regulate nutrients, right? To protect against low blood sugar. And it, you know, it just, it just seems to be a protective mechanism. Okay. Interesting. So you don't think there's a, I'm just like super curious, a beneficial effect with fasting and muscle growth because of the raised growth hormone. And then when you eat again, I don't, I I feel like it would be very transitory. And I, I do think that fasting in and of itself is counter regulate, you know, is, is in opposition to muscle protein synthesis. Okay. So those, those signals are likely just protective. Like that's why they're. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the answer as to why mechanistically. I mean, the only thing that I can think of and the only thing that I've read is just as a, a counter regulatory mechanism to protect against low blood sugar. But again, I don't, I don't totally know that answer. In terms of is the growth hormone stimulus enough to generate muscle protein synthesis, I would say no. Okay, that's really interesting. Actually, and sort of related to that and related to things earlier, talking about a genetic stimulus and then a long-term effect from that, this was in rats. So again, hard to know how it translates exactly, but I was reading that mice, where they actually limited their food intake during the first 20 days of their life, created a long-term genetic profile where they had greater longevity. Do you have any thoughts? I guess that would be a a larger question about humans and babies. Like, so when we're, yeah, infants. So it sounds like they restricted them. It sounds like they uh, almost essentially malnourished them. Mm -hmm. And then they ultimately had longer lifespans. And then they had mice, like also in that same early phase, they were actually given growth hormone 
and they had shortened lifespans in, in the end. So that, that was Tracy Anthony's study. That was some of her work. So you'd have to... That's who you just had on your show? That's right. Just, yeah, we haven't released it. And she basically said that they, what it did is it, and you know, maybe this wasn't her work. We'd have to look, but she replicated these studies. I believe she replicated these studies. And what she said was that it, it was essentially created mice that were half the size of a regular individual and that when you added growth hormone, it did what you would expect it to do. But at some point, the body built antibodies to the growth hormone. That was the issue? Was the body creating the antibodies? There were likely multiple issues, but you know, you can't have that would translate to a human if you, I mean, calorie restriction can potentially improve longevity, but you know, these questions are very nebulous in the sense of, well, what is longevity? Is it six hours? How are we determining these endpoints? I think that that has to be determined before we can really understand what that translates in humans. Because there's no, we're not looking at any endpoints. What are what are the the endpoints? You know, and in terms of protein restriction, that's essentially malnourishment. And if you then re-nourish the animal, the animal will probably grow. But in terms of calorie restriction, you know, I'm not sure early on in life, that would be a good strategy, you know? Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch 
over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it. And it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. That's something they probably couldn't even ethically test in humans. So, but what's really interesting about all of that is, so what you just said about you know, what we actually see long-term and like in real life. So when I had Walter Longo on the show, because he's a big advocate of low protein diets, he says the exact same thing that we're saying right now, but he draws the opposite conclusion, which is that he thinks if we look at the data, it's like low protein for longevity. But that's never been shown in humans. So my question would be, why isn't that shown in humans? So if that's the case... Why is there not one randomized control trial that shows that that in humans? So like Loma Linda, for example, are they low protein? Yeah. And they're living long? I believe they are, but that's not a randomized control trial. That's epidemiology. So that's, you know, maybe they're meditating. Maybe they're outside in nature. You can't say that just because they, you know, I, I would disagree with, with Longo and say, well, we know that throughout aging, muscle mass improves survivability in all-cause mortality. If you put an individual in all-cause mortality, right, we know there are multiple randomized control trials looking from Stu Phillips' lab to Doug Patton-Jones to Don Lehman to say those with a higher protein diet improve lean muscle mass, improve endpoints of triglycerides and blood pressure and fasting insulin and blood glucose so my question would be, well, if we know that skeletal muscle is so pivotal in survivability, when you put people on a low-protein diet, we know that they have lower skeletal muscle and lower bone density. 
So, I mean, are they going to, could they live five hours longer or a week longer or a year longer? I don't know. It's never been done in humans. But I guess the question is, where does someone place importance? And I would argue and say, you have to protect skeletal muscle at all costs. You know, I'm a trained geriatrician and I took care of those people at the end of their life. And it's, it's pretty ugly. And the idea that you, one would say, go low protein when we know that the RDA is the minimum protein amount to prevent deficiencies. And now to make a recommendation to go beyond, to go lower than that, when actually it's likely for more optimization would be higher, I think is a bad strategy. I asked him, because he was talking about the role of IGF-1 being overstimulated and things like that. So I asked him, you know, about like what I do, which is basically you know, a large amount of protein, but then I'm fasting every day. So maybe that's mitigating the the chronic IGF-1 stimulation. But is, it, but is it chronic? But then I would argue and say, well, but IGF-1 is stimulated through exercise. You know, there's a role in overconsumption of carbohydrates and obesity and elevated levels of IGF-1. Why would someone point to protein and, and, and make that correlation? You know, and I, I think it's unusual. And there was also a letter to the editor in response to, you know, what, you know, that he was part of a paper that was pretty controversial in cell metabolism. And this was, you know, he published a paper that he linked cancer and protein or something like that was IGF-1. And there was a huge backlash and a letter to the editor written about the flawed data and the exaggeration of the conclusions to the public and those serious negative health consequences for adults seeking to maintain muscle and protect against sarcopenia. And this can be found online. But I, I think that that's really important to note that, you know, it's it's very, very risky when things are taken out of context, you know. So, for example, I'll read to you a response from these world-class scientists, okay? And it says, and this is based on what Longo is talking about, and it says, the study shows a relationship with growth factor IGF-1 and cancer risk, which is already known. This is what this Professor Sanders says. However, the relationship between IGF-1 levels and protein intake is far more tenuous in humans. And it says that the cross-sectional data suggests animal proteins to be associated with increase in IGF-1 levels, but there is lack of evidence from any controlled feeding studies that IGF-1 levels fall when animal protein is restricted. So basically, and there's just a huge letter to the editor. There's all kinds of stuff. So this is, I think it's misrepresenting rodent and mice data to push something that people believe, which may not be accurate. Yeah, I opened this conversation by saying I'm haunted. And it's just because of all of these, you know, all of these debates. You were talking about being with people at the end of life and, you know, problems with sarcopenia and such. Because the one thing that Longo will say, and I think a lot of the um, the figures in that movement will say, is they do admit that when you're older, there's a, an increased need for protein. I think you, you said this at the beginning, but is that just due to a reduction in the ability to use protein or is there actually a need for more protein? Like if they could, in theory, use protein the same as they could when they were young, like is it digestive enzymes down and enzymatic processes down? Like why does it? I, I think that that's a mistake. I think that you always 
need optimal protein because when you are young and healthy, that is the time to build your body armor. You have to build your body armor and you have to build your reserve. You don't want to wait until you're 70 to start weight training. So the idea that one would restrict protein throughout the most formative years and throughout the time in which they have the greatest anabolic potential is a huge mistake in my mind. I've seen it, right? So then all of a sudden, what? You hit the magic number of 60 and then you increase your protein intake. But what about all the damage and what about all the missed opportunities of optimizing for skeletal muscle all those decades? I would argue and say that it's just incorrect. And yes, the body needs more protein as it ages. You know, there's two ways to really stimulate muscle, and that is through resistance exercise, which most people aren't training harder as they get older. They're training a little less effectively. And the other aspect is the efficiency of protein utilization goes down, which is another reason why you need more. However, I would argue that if you optimize for protein throughout life, you have a much better chance of meeting important health markers throughout your life, like better body composition, like lower triglycerides, like better blood pressure, like better glucose regulation, like lower insulin levels. I mean, there's a whole host of other reasons why you would want to optimize for protein rather than restrict protein, which we know, and I'm sure people who've done it, I mean, it's just you know, protein is important for neurotransmitter production. It's, it's important for injury. It's important for so many things that it's just, it's the most important macronutrient and is the most controversial because it is misunderstood. And the idea that when someone hits some magical age that we would all of a sudden restrict it is a, or all of a sudden start eating it is, again, it's a complete missed opportunity. Do you know what would be the longest-lived population with a high-protein intake? I have no idea. I need to look that up. Yeah, I have no idea. I'm sure they're out there. And then did you say that they are potentially changing the system to show ratios of amino acids rather than total protein? Yeah, I I, I don't, not anytime soon, but maybe within the next year, they'll, they'll add in a protein score. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not privy to all that information, <laughs> but I do believe that at some point, I, let me rephrase that. I know at this point in time that that is something that is going to be individuals are working on. Oh, wow. That would be an overhaul. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it, it's an insanity, right? Isn't it crazy to think about it that, you know, we just are slow to catch up. We're slow to catch up. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think, Everybody who is in this space really wants the same thing. And we all want people to live a better life. And I believe that the only way that's going to happen is if we have more transparent conversations about where our biases are, what we've seen, what is actually true, and what does the data support? What is the high quality data support? Combine that with practical experience, you know? No, thank you for saying that because that is like literally exactly the way I feel. And, and even when we were talking about the Longo stuff, because my question is just like, if this is the case, you know, why is it like pushing an agenda or like, why are certain things thought the way they are thought? I mean, talking to you, it sounds like it's just a, it's a lot of misconceptions. Yeah. And I think that people, I think scientists are humans too, and they all come in it with their own biases. You know, I was working out this morning and I was thinking, how do we merge the two, right? I mean, I am definitely pro-animal products, but me being pro-animal products doesn't mean me being against 
plant-based nutrition. It's not. It's how do we come to some understanding where anyone can choose what they want and know how to do it in a way that is meaningful and appropriate to them with important health endpoints. And I think that that's where we're at right now. Unfortunately, if the information is so misconstrued, then people are going to run around with their, like a chicken with their head cut off and not know what to do. And it's so moralized. Yeah. And that's the problem, right? At the end of the day, no, a whole fresh red meat is not bad for you. We, how else will we get our creatine, right? Like, you know, where are we going to get these bioavailable sources of these nutrients? It doesn't make any sense. But if someone doesn't want to eat animal products, I totally get it. And I can respect that and appreciate it. It's just a matter of, you know, is dietary protein bad? Should we be restricting it in our youth? No. Why would you do that? Could you do intermittent times of restriction? Maybe, right? Can we say that we have confirmed reasons why we know this to be true in human studies? No, we can't. Eventually, I believe we will be able to. And I think it's important to say, well, but, you know, I think an honorable thing to do would be to say, hey, these are rodent models. These are mice models. We don't see that in human data right now. What we do see in human data is when people go more plant-based, we see that they lose lean muscle mass, or we see that they lose lean body mass. But does that mean that they have to? No. I think that, you know, if there are strategies to increase overall dietary protein, even if it's plant-based and really increase their training, is it doable? Yes. But again, I think these conversations need to be more inclusive, not so uninviting. I could not agree more. That's why with this show, I love bringing on people from all different perspectives because I have no idea how we would like come to a place of truth if we're not hearing everything. So yeah, well, thank you. This has been absolutely amazing. (laughs) I could pick your brain for hours and I cannot thank you enough for the work that you're doing. There needs to be more people talking about this and just like talking to you now, hearing your perspective on it is just so invaluable. So I cannot thank you enough for everything that you're doing. No, I'm so happy to be able to do it. I feel like we can, we'll have to do a part two on this. You're going to have to come on the intermittent fasting podcast. That will be amazing. The last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I actually ask my daughter this. We ask as a family, we go through this every single night. And I will say I was thinking about, so I actually start the day with this question. And as I was sitting here, I'm writing my book and I I feel so grateful to be able to have the opportunity to take the knowledge from some of these really great scientists and be able to share it. It's very meaningful, you know, and I, I, I truly hope someone gains some insight or wisdom or feels heard during this podcast. Well, you definitely did that. And thank you so much. It's a rare talent to take the science and make it so understandable and approachable and to do it like we just said, not to be repetitive, but to do it with a clear awareness of people's biases and like the ideologies that they're coming from and the actual science of what's happening. So thank you. This is amazing. I will be eagerly following your work. Thanks so much for having me, Melanie. Thanks, Gabrielle. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, 
What Win Wine, lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.